Hello, welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair, Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. I am Jennifer Roach. Today we're going to talk about perfection. That'll be fun. Um, you know by now what we're doing. We're going through the Come Follow Me readings, picking out some questions that our evangelical friends or family members might ask and trying to understand where they're coming from, try to help you let them know where you're coming from. Maybe you can have a better conversation with them. Maybe you can share some of the good things that come from our faith with them in a way that might bless them. Um, all right. So we are on week 46. We've been doing this for 46 weeks, friends. It's amazing. Um, and this year of Come Follow Me is rapidly coming to a close, which means talking about how evangelicals view things in the Bible doesn't really make sense to do next year because we're going to be in Book of Mormon year, right? Um, and I know several of you have made comments or have written to me and just wondered, like, what is going to happen with this podcast next year? Fear not. Things will change. Things have to change, right? That We can't keep doing this next year. It doesn't make sense. Um, so this particular podcast is going to need to pivot a little bit and I will have more details for you in the future on what that will look like. Um, but I will still be around. I will still be doing stuff with FAIR. We're actually working on a second show right now um, that'll be in addition to this one. Fewer episodes, higher quality. Um, you all are so patient to sit and listen to me do this in my house, right? It's not fancy at all. Um, so we're working on a project, fewer episodes, higher quality. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to it. We've been having meetings and I am just thrilled. I've been working with really two of the best researchers at FAIR and we're putting together something I think you are going to like. Um, so you will still get to see me. Congratulations. And I'm sorry. I don't know exactly what to say about that. It will be good. And I will have more to share with you after Thanksgiving which at U.S. Thanksgiving, if you're not in the U.S., it's in like a week and a half. Anyway, um, here we have, we have arrived in the book of James. The book of James is incredibly near and dear to my heart. I grew up in a church where um, Bible memorization was a huge deal. And the book of James was the first book of the Bible I ever memorized. I still have most of it memorized to this day. Um, and so I'm I'm thrilled that we're here. Two of the biggest verses in James that we could have talked about is kind of stuff that we have already dealt with. So we get James 1.5, if you ask wisdom, ask God, right? That's a classic Latter-day Saint verse. And James 2.14 about um, faith and works, right? We have actually covered both of those topics really well in this series, so we're gonna we're not gonna do those. We're gonna back up a little bit um, and do the verses right before James one five, James one two through four. Here it is in the English Standard Version. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there is some history here that will help put evangelicals into their correct context. Um, and just as, as we've seen so many times on this show, evangelicals 
come from a wide variety of theological positions. Evangelical is not a theological position. Um, it's a style position more than anything. Um, there's people who would quibble with that, but I mean, that's how I would say it. Um, evangelical churches can mostly be divided into two camps, though. Um, those that are influenced by Reformed thinking, Calvinistic thinking, um, and those that are informed by sort of Methodist type of thinking. Um, there are, I mean, there's an awful lot of evangelical churches where it's just really hard to know actually what they are or where they're coming from. In fact, Lifeway Research, who they research all kinds of church issues, they say over 60% of the cosmetic names for churches, so like Vision Church or New Hope Church, like something like that, 60% of those are actually Southern Baptist churches. They don't have the name Southern Baptist anywhere on their website. It's not in their title. It's not in their materials. They present themselves as if they have no ties to any larger group at all. But they're being funded by the Southern Baptists, right? So you can kind of see like theologically where they would come from in that way. And and it's more and more true with all evangelical churches that they don't necessarily advertise what position that they're coming from. You can sometimes kind of get a hint if you see where their their pastor or their other staff went to divinity school. If they all went to Dallas Theological, like then that's a perspective, right? You you, you might know what you're getting with that. You might not. Um, I mean, a lot of evangelicals sort of know how to root out that information, even when it, it isn't presented in an obvious way to them. But you, Latter-day Saint, if you're an outsider to that world, you, like, good luck figuring out <laughs> who who's backing them or what, and what their theology is. It, they just don't, don't make it obvious. But I want to explain the two groups to you and how this idea of becoming perfect like God is perfect plays out in both of those groups. So the particular part of the evangelical world um, a church comes from really matters here. Churches that are um, informed by the Lutheran or Reformed or Calvinistic traditions, and that's roughly about 60% of evangelical churches, they are very, very unlikely to ever talk about the idea of becoming perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. It is not a category for them. And their theology reveals why. Let me let me explain it to you. It actually makes some sense when you sort of can kind of see it from the inside. Their, their position is sometimes called hypersovereignty, meaning God is so perfect, God is so complete. God is so good that it's insulting to him for any human to ever have the audacity to say that they could be perfect as he is perfect. Like the folks in this camp, they find that deeply offensive. They find it full of hubris. It's not something you would ever say to God. God is perfect and you are not, right? So they're very, very, very clear on what that relationship is. So for them, verses about perfection, they can be in part aspirational. They believe that God is perfect and we should try for perfection, even though we will never achieve it. But they're also part of a system that says all humans 
are depraved. Your original status in front of God is that you're hated. Um, you are not his child. Only through the power of Jesus Christ and the resurrection can that rift between you and God be healed and you can become his adopted child and he'll stop hating you. Um, so verses like this function as a sign to point out not only how good God is, but how bad we are. That's that's how they that's how they that's how they would read this. You know how um, the Apostle Paul sometimes says that the law exists to point out our sin. And these folks, the Reformed tradition, they would say um, that verses like this about perfection exist to point out how imperfect we actually are, and that that's their intended function. It's it's hyperbole. It's not saying you are ever actually going to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's a way to point out that you are not and never will be perfect. Um, in their way of thinking, perfection is impossible. And, and even thinking that it could ever be achieved in a million years is, is, is just hubris to them. Um, they do that because they want to hold this incredibly high view of God and his sovereignty. But that's the, that's the consequence for, for humans is that we could never be like him. Their interpretation is that God is so good and so perfect. Um, it, you, will, you will never obtain perfection. It does. It sounds grim, right? It doesn't feel as grim in real time for them as it sounds to you. Um, like it sounds awful. It sounds like terrible theology. Why would anyone believe that? Like I get your your gut reaction to this, but they think of it more like the stronger of a believer you are, the more willing you are to affirm God's goodness and in turn your own depravity. It's a way for them to say that they are so committed to God, they're willing to accept their own terribleness. It's almost a point of pride for them to be able to. Um, it's like, I am strong enough to admit the real reality about who I am in the face and the light of how good God is. And you can see their good intentions behind this. They have an incredibly high level of respect here for, for God as they understand him to be, and they're trying to live that out. That's worthy of respect. All of this that I have just described is true for evangelical churches that are in kind of that reformed theology camp, so roughly 60% of evangelicals. But there is another side, the other like 40-ish percent of them, um, we have to go all the way back to the 1700s to kind of get the gist of what they're doing. So 1700s, we get John and Charles Wesley. They're the brothers who began the Methodist church. Just, just for like timeline, John Wesley, um, he dies about 15 years before Joseph Smith is born. The Wesleys are part of the first great awakening. Um, and Joseph Smith is part of the second great awakening. To kind of orient you into history there. Um, and what the Wesley brothers do is they pull from um, a group in early Christianity known as the Church Fathers. The Church Fathers live the first couple hundred years after Christ. We have a lot of their writings. Um, they're, they're something that you study in, in theology school, right? 
And so the Wesleys, John and Charles, had both studied them pretty extensively. Um, and there are plenty, absolutely a ton in the writings of the early church, church fathers about becoming perfect as God is perfect. But things got weird. Around the fourth century, um, they start thinking about perfection in a way that makes them turn to um, this really strict asceticism and monasticism. So a, a cloistered life in a monastery, um, a, a light or a life lived like in public society, not cloistered away, but in a very ascetic way, meaning they're committed to extreme poverty. Um, fr frankly, they're committed to near starvation and many of them starve themselves to death as they see that as part of um, their spiritual worship. That's a whole other topic for a different day. Um, and to be fair, Christian history had to go that way. The, the fall of Rome was, was, was happening, right? The entire governmental structure that had been holding Europe together disappears. We get the dark ages. And by that time, the Christian monastic communities are already well established. Um, the, the biggest payoff of that is they become the guardians of the scriptures. They, they usher the, the actual scrolls, the actual manuscripts through the dark ages when they otherwise probably would have been entirely lost to us. Um, so that had, that had to happen. Um, but the Wesleys look at that and say, wait a minute, thinking about perfection should not have to lead to you living a cloistered life away from society or taking vows of extreme poverty. So the Wesleys want to rewind time and go back to the early church fathers and what they were talking about with perfectionism. It's remarkably similar to what we are taught in our church, right? About Heavenly Father is perfect. We are like him. We are becoming like him. It didn't take a real long time, but that that's the goal. And the early church fathers are teaching all of that. Um, John and Charles, in the beginning of the Methodist movement, and really for their first 150 years that's strongly taught in Methodism things change um it, it it's not quite that way for them anymore at least in the largest group of Methodists along the way um they sort of sort of slough off ideas about that it really the same idea really gets picked up by a group called the holiness movement these are your like Pentecostals, um, Church of the Nazarene, Salvation Army, their church, if you didn't know that. Um, some of the smaller like um, break off Methodist groups would be in that. Um, it, a lot of evangelical churches are in that that arc of they're sort of picking up the stuff that had been dropped by some of these other bigger groups. Um you can trace the influence of the Wesley brothers into modern evangelicalism in about a hundred different ways. But the idea that we might become like God is not really one of them. It is, it's pretty hard to find that idea in 2023 in the evangelical church. Um, 50 years ago, absolutely, probably even 30 years ago, although we might be pushing it there, um, they were drawing on the classic Protestant teaching that that taught that. Um, what they do today is 
different. And they're not being sneaky with this. They're not being tricky. Mostly what they're doing is taking advantage of a little wiggle room that exists in the Greek word that's used here for perfection. So there's not very many words in biblical Greek, and there's about a bajillion words in English, right? So every Greek word can be translated in about 10 different ways. So there's a lot of wiggle room in almost every single word. And they take advantage of that wiggle room, which, which is fine. That's something that is done. Um, and they recast perfection as um, human maturity. So emotional maturity, spiritual maturity, relational maturity, that somehow that that is what is being talked about here. So you get translations um, like the NIV. NIV says um, that perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Right. So the, the word perfection isn't even in that verse. The English Standard Version still gives us that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. English Standard Version is a little bit more scholarly than the NIV, but the NIV has been around for decades longer and has had more influence, especially on evangelicals. So when they when they read a verse like be mature, it doesn't really trigger the same response that be perfect does. So the reality is that they're not reading in, in multiple translations. Some of them don't even know that perfect is a legitimate translation here. Um, so it's not something that's talked about a ton. However, because it's a because it's a doctrine in our church um, that God is perfect in a very, very, very long time from now, we are becoming like him because there's so much stark contrast in there. I think if they know things about our theology, this is likely to be one of the things that I know. Um, so what do we do with all of this? Oh my goodness. Well, first, I'm sorry, I cannot help myself. The mental health therapist in me needs to tell you that this conversation about becoming perfect, like God is perfect, has nothing to do with um, perfectionism, scrupulosity, any of the like overly worried and overly anxious rule keeping that sometimes you or I or, or other people that we know fall into. Um, the, the idea that today you must do all things perfectly in order to be loved and accepted by God or others, people pick that idea up and then they end up in my office, in a mental health office, sitting across from a therapist trying to unwind that. Honestly, part of the joy of having family and, and friends is that these are people who know your imperfections and they love you anyway. They want you anyway. They want to know you anyway, despite your imperfections. So it's not like anyone in our church is saying, oh, you must be a perfect human being. But sometimes evangelicals think that's what we're saying. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, to be fair, you do see a slightly lower incidence of perfectionism and scrupulosity in an evangelical population than you do a Latter-day Saint population. I don't have a single study to back that up. That is my own 
observation, having been an evangelical for most of my life and currently being a mental health therapist with an office next to BYU. That that that's my observation. I would love if you know of anything that backs that up, I would love to know or or corrects it. Um, as far as how to talk to evangelicals about this, let me offer you my experience when I was an evangelical. I did not know a lot about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I had picked up some things along the way. Um, not any kind of serious study, just sort of part of being a religiously interested human being alive in the 20th century in America, right? You pick some things up. And I can say from that perspective that there is some real overlap for people outside of our church on the concept of perfection and of worthiness. I was aware Latter-day Saints care about this concept called worthiness. I was also aware that they had some kind of belief in someday you can become perfect as God is perfect. Um, and I conflated the two of those. And I think a lot of evangelicals actually do. For the most part, they don't understand what we're talking about. It 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 does take a it takes kind of a little bit of a mind shift to to understand. So I don't blame them at all. Um, before I knew any better, I would have said that the phrase a worthy Latter-day Saint means the identical thing to them as a perfect Latter-day Saint. I know that doesn't make sense. I also knew the reputation of the people in the church as being really good people, excellent mothers, excellent people to have around in a crisis. So my first thought is that the conversation about the concept of affection that's what they're talking about when they're talking about worthiness. So if you're going to have this conversation with a evangelical friend, I would just make sure they're able to differentiate between those two concepts. We absolutely care about worthiness. That's the, we could have done the verses in James about, about good works and, and obeying the commands of God and all those things. Um, Per the idea that God is perfect and that we can become like him, that's an entirely different concept. And evangelicals really, really might be conflating those. Here's a second thought. And this is a quote from President Nelson long before he was President Nelson. He was just in the quorum back then, 1995. So like third, almost 30 years ago, he said, we all need to remember men are that they might have joy, not trips. I love that because guilt is, it's kind of contagious in that people can pick up on it. If you're talking about issues um, of becoming like God and, and there's this undercurrent of guilt in it about how you haven't done enough and you haven't been perfect enough and you haven't been worthy enough, even if you're not explicitly saying those words, other human beings know how to feel that in you. The more intuitive that person is, the more they know how to feel that in you, right? Um, if you feel guilty about what you have done or what you have not done, um, that's gonna that is gonna come through talking to your evangelical friend. But it's so pointless. The the role of guilt in in spiritual development it it is and it must be to point out to you that something has gone wrong. And, and that some of it's your fault. 
but not so that you can feel bad about yourself and carry that burden around for the next three decades and sort of just have this guilt complex in you. It's to point out what you did wrong so that you can make a change and address the issue. It's a very, very problem-solving kind of emotion. Um, guilt doesn't add to your holiness. It doesn't add to the love you receive or give to God. Um, it's just intended to be a giant arrow pointing to, hey, problem solve this, fix this. Um, you know, I mean, we humans don't really like to change all that much. And sometimes we barely even know how, even when we want to. But that's the actual role of guilt, to point out where change needs to happen. But if you're carrying around a bunch of guilt for the ways in which you are far from perfect, well, number one, join the club, because that is where all of us are. Um, and, and number two, that is not only hindering your spiritual growth, because it's just keeping you stuck in guilt instead of actually doing the problem solving to change things. Um, it's really bad for the people that you're talking to about gospel topics, gospel issues, because they're going to feel that on you. Or expressing, even in the undercurrent, your guilt when you're talking about your faith. It just, it's weird. It, and, and it's not something that people are generally attracted to, right? So as much as you can, do the work of letting your guilt go. Um, if you need help with that, there certainly are people in your ward and whatnot who can help you do that. But guilt is intended to move you forward, not keep you stuck. Man, that's a lot of mental health topics today. Forgive me. Um, for being on my soapbox on that one, but you know, it's what comes up. So here we are. Okay. Next week, we're going to do a priesthood of all believers. Super fun. Come back and I'll see you then.